Welcome to another week here on Cap and Trade. I am your host, Texans Cap. On the bottom left of your device screen, you will see a microphone icon. You can use that to request speaking rights. We have some points of discussion to cover this week, and we'll try to get to as many of your questions as possible throughout the show. As a reminder, this show is recorded and will be redistributed via the Cap and Trade podcast. Thank you again if you're a returning listener, and if you're new, welcome. With that, let's go. All right, tonight we have Adam Wexler of Sports Radio 790 joining us. He co-hosts the A-Team show, which runs 3 to 6 during the week on the afternoon drive, like I said, on Sports 790. Uh, Adam, you know, it covers quite a bit of wide range of Houston sports and is very knowledgeable on on many aspects of that, but I do 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 seek his input and you know he was one of the first people to to welcome me with open arms at my first texans training camp a few years back so i invited adam on to talk this week about the texans and the 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 win over the tennessee titans and with that adam how you doing tonight man great to be with you plenty to uh, run through you you've got amazing timing getting me after a texans win as rare as they are yeah, no, it was, it's nice to have a, a, a positive show for once, or at least some positive points. I've got some negative points on here, but yes, definitely nice to to come in here after a win for the, the first time in several weeks, and so that part's exciting. And, you know, we'll just start off with just kind of some overall thoughts of what you had on the, on the Titans game, just from a high-level view. I mean, you play from in front, it changes everything, uh, even a good team. The Titans are a good team, and they're playing from behind, even though the margin wasn't that great. Uh, it changes things. They also had the added detriment of, of having their whole offense kind of out of sync. I think they really want to play the exact same way without Derrick Henry, and when their replacements are who they are, uh, it's a little bit more difficult to do so. So more is on the plate of Ryan Tannehill. It definitely helped uh, that uh, on – A.J. Brown's opening catch, uh, Justin Reed blasted him in the shoulder, and that made him far less helpful the rest of the day. He obviously returned, but he got banged up a couple of times. They don't have a tremendous receiving core to begin with, with Brown down and Jones out. Uh, so all a bunch of little things helped. Um, I think the Texas defensive line did a decent job up front. Uh, um, it obviously allowed them to force Tannehill to try to win the game all by himself. And that usually plays well. The Dolphins fans know that. And even the Titans fans probably, uh, even with the good times he's had there, realize that that's not really what they want. And give credit to the Texans on the turnovers. And you know, I know a lot of people have the chance to go back and, and watch Coach's film, the All-22. And I think you could really even see it on game day. Those weren't accidental interceptions. The, the Texans front or the Texans DBs or the scheme or just individual play they did force those turnovers. They earned those takeaways against a legitimate NFL starting quarterback. Probably not at the top of the heap, but uh, a five-turnover game against Jacoby Brissett versus a five-turnover game against Ryan Tannehill, there's a difference. Yeah, definitely. And, it, and it's it, you say that about Tannehill, it's always interesting trying to, if you want to say rank, rank him among the quarterbacks. He It just kind of floats in there in that top 15 to top 10. He has... Burst, especially last year when he had Arthur, Arthur Smith calling plays for him, but he had burst of being almost the top five quarterback when you look at it from an EPA per, you know, per drop back, things like that. But he's still, like you said, a top, a very strong quarterback. Obviously, weather conditions 
were a were a factor in this game, especially for the Texans' offense. But you're you're exactly on point that that the interceptions were driven from pressure on the quarterback, were driven from the 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 pressure allowing the cornerbacks and the safeties to keep their eyes forward in the zone scheme, keep their eyes on the quarterback, not letting players get behind them. Like you said, the the big shot to AJ Brown looked like he got a stinger right up his arm early in the game with the big hit from Justin Reed, which that the his his type of tackling drives me insane. That was a couple you mean times the not where, wrapping up. Type? Yeah, just laying the shoulder in him. Mean, it was great on that one, but there was a couple other times where he just bounced off the guy. So that part's a little little my nitpicky thing. But yeah, I mean from a high level view, a you know it was a strong. A good performance from the defense. I'm not going to say strong, but a good performance from the defense. The defensive line did their part. The offense was poor again. You know, there's weather, like I said, weather conditions contributed. But, and the third piece of this is we finally got through a game without any major coaching gaffes by Coach Coley. And that's, you know, a welcome because it just got, it got, cumbersome every week he's having to answer for some of these decisions that he was making and you know it's the first you know one of the few times that he came out with the challenge flag he did it twice over you know the the nico collins one i thought that was a worthy challenge the rex burkhead spot it you know that was that was a bang bang kind of thing but it was nice to finally get through a game without just you know no wtf moments with coley and what are you doing why are you doing this and then him having to come back and explain it the next morning. So that was a welcome surprise. And like I said, the defense was great, you know, and that, you know, comes out with a win. I mean, the, the offense, the, you know, that's kind of where we'll start tonight. So the offense, you know, it was, it was rough. I mean, they, they got the ball in some optimal spots, you know, from the, the, the punt that came off of Chester Rogers foot, gave him the ball at the five yard line and ended up coming Coming away with some points there. They had, you know, the opposite, you know, many interceptions that gave them good field position. So that kind of limited their opportunity to gain more yards on offense. But when you go back and look at it, and when you when you look at Taylor, who comes back out of the game with 107 yards passing on 24 attempts, that's a 4.3 yard per attempt. His A dot was only 5.2. So I don't know if we're starting to see Taylor come back to earth versus those first six quarters that we saw at the beginning of the season versus what we're seeing now or if or if the hamstring's still kind of in play or what's going on with him. Do you have any thoughts on Taylor's performance? Well, it's pretty hard to win a football game doing what they did offensively. Maybe a miracle, you could call it. And again, that's the difference between playing from behind and playing from in front for, to a certain extent. But you know, after they you know, got the ball on the, uh, the five-yard line and scored that touchdown – uh, when he dove into the end zone, they uh, it's almost impossible to play worse offensively without turning the ball over. I mean, literally, it's almost impossible to call plays that aren't going to work, to have Tyrod Taylor throw the ball into the dirt over and over and over again. They basically had three and outs for six consecutive drives to end a football game. And every single one of those drives was super duper short. The incompletions, running out of bounds, whatever it took, to take no time off the clock and gain no yards, they did it for you know almost the entire second half. And that's insane. That game, they should never have been in the situation they were in at the end. They needed the turnovers late. They obviously needed them the whole game, but they actually needed to keep Tennessee uh, from putting more points on the board or else it turns into a game they could lose. 
And that was really on the table still in the fourth quarter. It never should have been the case. I don't mean to say that their offense was, you know, clicking early, but to play as poorly as they did, it, it is alarming. Uh, it'd be more alarming if it wasn't something that this team has been through before under this uh, this coordinator. And I, I am not anti Tim Kelly, and it's being hard. It's become harder and harder uh, to stay that way because I actually thought it was worthwhile to keep him with or without Deshaun like what they put together uh, for the first six quarters, like you said, and even some of the stuff they were running early in the Davis Mills time seemed perfectly fine and, and the kind of stuff you'd want to do. The way they protected his turnover count, he obviously had them anyway, uh, it's just silly. Uh, there's no reason for it. It doesn't get anybody anywhere. He doesn't learn how to play. Uh, they don't give their team any chance to perform because they were so unbelievably conservative, it makes it even easier on the defense. So those really aren't defensive schemes you're going to see if you're trying to do something. And I don't really even know what to say about their running game. Um, I know their offensive line is not good. I know that it's not well suited for the run game that they're trying to to put out there, their schemes and how they like to do things. But I can't believe they literally go out and do the same thing every single week. It doesn't even matter who they face, what kind of front they're using how the other team approaches them, they run the same stuff every week with the same players that can't get it done. I, I really don't understand that. And it's pretty disappointing considering the group they have offensively, it's fine. I mean, the coaching group they have offensively. Pep Hamilton's perfectly fine as a quarterback coach. I honestly don't think Tim Kelly is a bad coordinator, although he looks like one this year. There's nothing wrong with their offensive line coach. There's nothing wrong with their tight ends coach. And yet they don't do any – they know they can't run the football. And yet they run the same plays that they know won't work. And, you know, then Coach Cully comes in after and says, well, we didn't get the yards that we wanted, but we were able to get the, the plays that we wanted and the count that we wanted. I mean, if they think running the ball into a brick wall 25 times a game is useful, by all means, keep doing it because it's, it's pathetic. And, you know, what they did with Philip Lindsay, I was mad at myself. I said as much on today's show that the second he got a carry and lost three yards on it on Sunday's game, my immediate thought was, he's going to get cut. This is pointless for him to give him carries. He barely sees snaps. He's the most uh, unsuccessful running back in a running back room full of unsuccessful running backs. It's a waste of time for this veteran to be on this football team. And unfortunately, that whole position group this year, that's probably the biggest disappointment I would have if I was looking at the future of this team. Because you don't have to treat any year, even when it's a down year, like a total waste of time. But they did. They signed nothing but veterans. There's no young players in the backfield to give carries to. It's a total waste of time. Next year's backfield will include... I didn't drop. I'm silent on purpose. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. It's. I mean, that that one Philip Lindsay carry, too. I'd, um, if you go back and look at it, it just... The offensive line, I think uh, Christian pulled... And Howard pulled to the outside, and they they did a, a kind of a sweep toss to to Lindsey, and Howard went to the immediate end, and Christian went way out wide to the almost to the cornerback, and it just left this gigantic lane for two linebackers to come sweeping in and take Lindsey down for a three yard loss. And I'm just like this. I mean, there's times where it's Lindsey's fault, but that that's just a pure illustration of just how bad no running back would have any chance in the type of scheme that they're running. I mean, it, you see it time and time and over, people who post the, the All-22 film, when they're, especially when they're pulling. I mean, McCray, Sharping, Howard, 
just look horrific when they're pulling out to the outside lane. They they don't seek out blockers. They're not getting to the second level. They're not peeling off blockers when they're they're running their uh, their power scheme up the front. They're not getting off a blocker and get to the second level. So, I mean, I don't know that any run back would be successful in the, in this scheme and the way things are running right now. And you know, and I I had shared a tweet within the spaces here. If you, if anybody needs to click on it, it breaks down just kind of how the the salary cap implications of Philip Lindsay and and what happens because every player is subject to to waivers at this point after the trade deadline. He's not a vested veteran, so he had been on waivers regardless. But the numbers are there. I mean, it's very minimal cap savings, and it's very, in my opinion, it's unlikely that any team would pick up the remaining the remainder of his contract. They'll somebody he'll clear waivers more likely tomorrow, and then a team will probably sign him to a practice squad, and then he'll get elevated up and probably work his way to an active roster by the end of the year on somebody who's going down, heading down towards the playoffs. So. That information is there for you if you need to look at that. And, you know, with that, with the with the whole running back lust that, you know, this city seems to have, you know, early in the year it was Scotty Phillips. He was act, inactive, 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 inactive. And then finally gets a little playing time, doesn't really show very much, then ends up injured. So now I wonder, is that is that lust going to shift over to Royce Freeman, who's now, I guess, RB3, which would be behind – which is scary to think that Rex Burkhead is probably your RB one at this point with David Johnson having the third down role. So that part's a little scary for me. Well, I like to, to think of Royce Freeman as the guy who couldn't play in front of Philip Lindsay in Denver. And that's the guy they got to play behind him here in Houston. And he gets to move up the depth chart because they couldn't keep Lindsay. Uh, by the way, don't be shocked if Philip Lindsay ends up in Tennessee uh, as Tennessee continues to try to figure out how to get through the Derrick Henry-less Henry weeks uh, that are going forward. I agree with you. I don't think they will claim him. And I know they made a move to uh, take the spot of you know Adrian Peterson, who they released today. But I don't think it's out of the question that they would at least give him a look, thinking our system's a little bit better, clearly our line's a little bit better. Honestly, Adrian Peterson, if it was not 90-year-old Adrian Peterson, he would have had another 25, 30 yards easy against the Texans with some of the holes even he couldn't help uh, but get to. He has no burst at all, but he still was able to get downfield on a couple of runs. Was there any reason why Foreman just didn't come back into the game? Have you heard anything on that? I hadn't heard anything on that, and I do think Hilliard had a few moments that maybe gave them pause to to go back. But, yeah, Yeah. I don't know why they wouldn't have just run. I mean, Hilliard and Foreman should have gotten a ton of looks, much more than they did. And, they again, knowing the Texans' offense was so inept, they really did abandon the run probably earlier than they needed to, knowing that Tannehill and the wet weather was probably not – the idea that he was going to have more turnovers or some turnovers uh, was way too prevalent. I was a little surprised uh, that they did it that way. But, yeah, uh, I'm probably not like uh, – it seems like most people are on Twitter regarding Scotty Phillips. I, I was never – he was a nice player to have in camp, exactly the player every team every year – should bring to camp. I wasn't even sure he was the undrafted free agent running back they were going to keep uh, a year ago. This year, it did seem like it was pretty obvious he was the the next best guy they had, and at least somebody that you would want to carry the ball for a team going nowhere with no other prospects in the backfield. And he'd obviously, I would hope, at this point in the year, 
be getting a lot more carries if he were healthy. But just because he isn't around doesn't mean nobody else could be. And Royce Freeman is nice and all, and I, I guess he hasn't gotten a, a ton of opportunities. And he's, he did something with them in Denver, but obviously not enough for them to not look elsewhere in several different places. So I'm fine with him being there, but it more guys and younger guys, guys a year out of the league or guys that have been on somebody else's practice squad, you know, those are the guys that should be here. And I'll give the Texans credit for one move that they made that I like that makes sense. And that's the, the Jimmy Morrissey move. That's the perfect opportunity. You go steal a guy off a practice squad. He was a draftee this year. I don't know how the Raiders left him on the practice squad, considering their backup center is Nick Martin of all people. He wasn't on their active roster because they wanted Nick Martin there. And now he's playing every snap for the Texans. You got to have more players like that. That makes sense. Your 44 guys that are your 22 starters that are out there. They're not all going to be first, second, third round picks. You always have to find other guys that can be more than special teamers. I don't know if Morrissey's one of them or not, but those are the guys that should be playing and they just don't have any. Yeah. And I think I had tweeted this a couple weeks ago that we're reaching the point of the season where Casario needs to start start snatching players off of practice squads before we get to the end of the season and bring them in and have you know two or three game auditions to determine if it's somebody worth keeping around for 2022. I mean the the roster turns got to continue for the back end of the roster. I mean you, you have such a low amount of players under contract for 2022. You've got to start Picking, like you said, like Jimmy Morrissey is the perfect example. You know, it remains to be seen. I mean, he's a he's a little bitty guy compared to the other offensive linemen, but it remains to be seen if he's if he's something that's going to be worth keeping around for twenty twenty two. But yeah, I mean, that's exactly what you, we should be looking for is for him to start signing those players from practice squads and turning it in the roster. So I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on, especially from from your radio from the radio the past couple, past week or, so, or at least the last couple of days, are you getting a sense that fans are happy with the team winning or you think they're more like, or is it more split? Like some fans are just happy to get a win and it's nice to be positive. And then there's the ones that no, we need to be losing. We need draft pick. We need draft stock, things like that. So, and before you answer Jalen, I see your, you got a request in buddy. Just hang tight. We will uh, get to your question here in a few minutes. But uh, Adam, just kind of wanted to get a sense from what you're hearing on the radio from from the listeners of, are the are the fans happy with the win? Or are they disappointed in the win? I think they're a little bit split, and I, I think they would be unhappy with the win if everybody knew who the number one pick in the draft was. And even though it's probably Kayvon Thibodeau, I don't think that is what excites the fans. If it was John Quarterback, things would be very very different. If everybody knew there was a franchise quarterback for the Texans to go take. Uh, they would be ticked off. Uh, they'd be completely upset uh, knowing that the only opportunity for this team to get out of what they're in is to go find their next franchise quarterback. And I think as the year has gone on, I think the fans, definitely the media, maybe the fans as well, don't believe that having the number one pick ensures that you're going to get the quarterback in this draft. Having the third pick, fifth pick, tenth pick, nothing would ensure you're going to get it because I don't know that there is one uh, honestly, one through five last year, the five quarterbacks that went in the top 15 picks, it seems reasonable to believe all five of them would rate better than any quarterback in this draft. And maybe that changes when they get to the offseason workouts and pro days and things like that. And and that's 
that's a maybe. And it just takes one team to fall in love with a guy. But I think that's why the fans aren't crushed by a win that puts them further away from Detroit. Um, they're really in the same boat as they were other than that one team. Their destiny's in their own hands for the draft pick. This weekend they have the Jets. Go out and lose to the Jets. It's basically a two-game cushion. And then you have Jacksonville Jaguars in Jacksonville later this year. You know, you lose that game, and that, now you're in tiebreaker situation. You, you, there's still only four teams with two wins or fewer, and the Texans are one of them. Uh, it might turn out that you know the next six Denver or uh, Detroit games are all losses. I, I don't know. I mean, this is a pretty good week for them, uh, catching the Andy Dalton-led Bears in Detroit. So maybe this is win number one for Dan Campbell's knee biters and uh, feed eaters, but I don't know that the Texans were ever going to get the number one pick once they well once they won a game. Yeah, and no, I, I think I think fans probably just need to kind of brace themselves for probably, probably like a top seven, six, five pick somewhere in that range. And you know, we we had Brad from Pro Football Focus on a couple of weeks ago, and we kind of talked about it was in this upcoming draft today, and you kind of hit on it today. There's no just clear cut franchise breaking player I mean Thibodeau might be that guy you know the safety might be that guy but at the end of the day it's more and more looking like you're not going to have a distinct advantage having pick number two over pick number seven so it you know things like you know like you said things will obviously change play the you know the boards or at least the the draft nicks that are out there catch up to the team's boards as we get closer to the draft and and you know, we'll see. But as of today, at me personally, I am not too terribly worried about the team winning a, t- a game or two because I still want to see that they're building on something that they're that they're just not totally catering. That the coaching staff is still reaching the lo- reaching the locker room, still instilling confidence with the players, and the players are bringing that out to the field on game day, and the team is putting all their work in and still coming out with a win or two for me that's what I want to see I want to see that they just haven't just given up on the season I want to see the players still positive I want to see contribution I want to see effort and I want to see that they're still building on what they've been preaching for the past you know past four months is kind of what I'm looking for so we'll we'll jump over here to a question, uh, Jalen. Let me get you some speaking rights. And Jalen jumped jumped off as soon as I gave him speaking rights. <laughs> All right. So with that, if you do have any questions, just hit that request button at the bottom left of your screen. Um, if you're you know, if you don't want to speak and you want to send me a question, my DMs are open, so you're more than welcome to uh, send me a question that way. We'll definitely get into that. And, uh, you know, we did have one question for, I think, uh, from Ryan Crossingham, who who couldn't make it tonight. He was asking, and, I, and this is a good one I wanted to get your intake, your take on this, Adam, was he was asking, is Desmond King and Cunningham playing themselves out of the doghouse and back in the conversation for being – on the roster in 2022 and beyond. And there had been, I don't know if you were hearing the same from, from King, he was missing walkthroughs. I know he had the, the one pseudo suspension where he was inactive one week and it was still continuing on after that, that he was still missing some walkthroughs and things like that. I haven't heard anything recently in the past couple of weeks, but 
I'm still not sold that that King is wanting to be here for beyond 2021. His performance was, you know, very good this weekend. It's finally nice to see him put one together. But in Cunningham, I, you know, it's obviously a, he's a benefactor of the Kirksey injury. Hewitt is coming off the field, so they're just leaving Grugiel Hill and Cunningham on the field when they drop into uh, their sub, sub packages in nickel and dime. But what are your thoughts on King and Cunningham for the rest of 2021 and, and potentially 2022? Well, I'll start with King. Uh, I thought that was a great signing, a uh, pretty reasonable deal, obviously another one-year deal, uh, perfectly suited for the position, did not have a good year last year, but had a pretty good history in the league before that. And honestly, I think he, he's like most of the guys they have for the final you know eight games of the season or so, starting with that game last week. He's trying to get a contract to go play somewhere else. I would be shocked if he were back here in Houston. I mean, to make plays like he did this past week, if he could do that for another few weeks, have good showings, you know, have a good you know rating, passer rating against when he's targeted, et cetera, he's going to play somewhere else. I don't, I don't know why the Texans would be interested in bringing him back, first of all. I know they need some veteran players, but they're going to go the, the, a similar route, in my estimation, and just find different guys they think are better uh, locker room fits, etc. cetera. Uh, again, I can't believe they don't have any young players to get on the field because they've signed a few, Jimmy Moreland and LeBlanc, and those guys have snap counts the same as you and I, which is unreal. I, I don't understand uh, the Moreland thing. <laughs> I've been waiting for him to see playing time, but I'll let you get back to it. Yeah, and then the couple of guys they signed right as the season was beginning, you know, between the final cuts and opening day, Russell Douglas and, you know, uh, the Holman uh, kid from the Packers. It's it just, I, I don't even, I, I don't understand. I really, I can't wrap my head around how uh, little sense it makes. I, I expect them to make these decisions differently next year. I just don't understand why they treated this year the way they did. So in King's case, I expect him to be looking to make plays to help this team win games so he could go play his football elsewhere. And I think Zach Cunningham is definitely not in their future plans, but his contract is trade prohibitive. Uh, anything that they can get from him, if they continue to see this kind of production, that obviously is fantastic for them because I don't think they have interest in keeping him here. And I know they had a nice defensive game with him as the, the lead guy with Kirksey out. And his tackle count has gone back up again, and he did have uh, some plays behind the line of scrimmage. He still can't cover. Not, not always the, the greatest asset to have in your linebackers, but the good ones, the ones who have contract like his, usually can both uh, stop the run and cover to a certain degree. And, and he really has never shown the ability to do that. I definitely don't think he is highly regarded inside that uh, that facility. I don't think they dislike him or hate him, but – I don't think they care one way or the other like he's a cornerstone player and a player with that type of contract, even though they weren't the ones, the GM wasn't the one to give it to him. Cal was there. It's on him too. Uh, I don't think they're tied to him like we've got this franchise caliber player uh, because I've never seen a player uh, play like he did previously in his career and they changed the defense and this linebacker basically can't even get on the field. His snap counts were so insanely low uh, while Kirksey was healthy, and to think this is the guy that should be the heart of your, you know, your front seven outside up on the back end, and he's not not the guy who's calling the scheme. He's not the guy who's communicating with the DC. He's not even on the field. 
Um, he's just not a part of their future plans. And I think if there was any interest in him and his contract was more manageable, uh, it was a player they would have liked to have moved at this year's trade deadline. And I absolutely think they will be looking to move him during uh, this offseason. Well, they they definitely tried to move him. He requested a trade unofficially towards the end of preseason, and the team tried to move him and could not find any takers. And then his they really pushed him again at the trade deadline and had no takers. Even with him on a minimum salary this year after the restructure, couldn't find a team to take on that contract because of his injury guarantee of being $10 million next year. So I think that was, like you said, his contract is, is the, the barrier with the trade. So at this point, the team is going to have to make an early decision. His his injury guarantee will vest into a full salary guarantee on March 22nd, I believe. It's five days after the, the fifth day of the new league year. So they're going to have to make a decision, and if they can't find a trade partner early, then they're going to have to they're going to have to make the the release pretty quick. And with that restructure, when they push a lot of that money into the into the future, you know, his cap charge is fourteen point seven next year, and if they do a just straight out release before that that vesting guarantee hits, it's going to be twelve point eight dead money. So you're only looking at a one point nine million cap savings. So. It's strictly not much a, a cap savings. It's going to be more of a cash savings, you know, saving $10.5 million just from a cash standpoint. You know, and it, if you if y'all do look at o, overthecap.com, when you look at the player, you know, the player pages, there's a, what we have as a OTC valuation tool, which it basically translates. We, we pull in PFF grades and we have some other metrics that are included in that, and it produces a dollar figure. So just so you, and we, we try to compare that their, their dollar, dollar value and it's an AP, APY number compared to their contract and, and Cunningham, his contract is four point fourteen point five APY and his valuation this year is 2.2 million. So right there, that should tell you he is playing up, not even close to his contract. And that's something that, you know, when I play with when I play with the contract calculator and the the cap calculator on OTC, which we had a new one released this week, um, Cunningham is one of the first ones that that comes up from from a release standpoint for me. And they're gonna, like I said, with that early investing period, they're going to make a decision quickly. And we'll keep it on the defensive side. So you know, like we talked about earlier, you know, in my opinion, the defense looked slightly above serviceable. They were pretty good. Certain players. You know, had their had some good days. Roy Lopez, Malik Collins, Jacob Martin, all were creating pressure, getting getting to the quarterback, and that's what contributed to a lot of those, a lot of those uh, interceptions. But you know, it's starting to you know first they had the you know the Whitney Merciless release, and now Jenkins sounds like when Coley said it's going to be a few weeks, and when you hear a few weeks, and we're still looking at it, and it's a foot injury, that's never a good sign. And it's rare, you know, because they would pretty, you know, Adam, correct me if I'm wrong, but usually they would come out and say if it's an ankle or not. But when they say foot, that just immediately to me says Liz Frank or something along those lines. So I feel like Jenkins is heading to heading heading to IR probably sometime this week once they get a little more evaluation on it. So in your opinion, I, we saw Derek Rivers get elevated this week, and he, he put together a few good snaps. But is there any injury concerns 
from a depth depth perception on the defensive line? Um, No, I don't think they're in too much trouble there. I think, you know, especially with what they have on the interior, they should be fine. All those guys are healthy and ready to go. Obviously, you mentioned Jenkins and the exit of Merciless, and those are among their ends. And, you know, I think they'll be able, you know, they definitely need Jonathan Grenard to come back because otherwise now you've been talking about a third guy in a group where they had a ton of depth. It's almost a given that Rivers is going to have to be elevated again. I don't think there's any way around that. Uh, but if they're able to do that, and, and I think they would probably be able to manage. If Grenard is back and he's back, Jacob Martin, uh, they probably can manage uh, with that. It, it, it may be something to consider a fifth player, but the way that they usually keep guys up and, and work their way through their front seven, I don't know that it's a much bigger issue than that. Jordan Jake is definitely going to IR. You know, when you see, I'm not sure if the head coach realizes it's three weeks that you have to be on IR, and when you say he's going to be out a couple weeks, yeah, you you want. I, I I joke that this is a question that that I would have to ask, you know, the coach at some point or or the GM in the few times we see him. Do they not value the roster spots? Do they not value the 53 man roster? It, it's insane how they throw roster spots away, just completely unused. They've got four quarterbacks on the active roster every week. No, the no, last no, couple no, no, weeks. no. Driscoll, Driscoll's yeah, a tight end now. He's a tight end. They listed him as a quarterback <laughs> on their ridiculous inactives. So, uh, I've that I, I I've already said I, I refuse to discuss that because I don't want to go overboard. But don't worry, it's not to, on my to do that, points. good. You know, for, <laughs> for them to just have two roster spots like that that are not useful. They spent several weeks doing the same thing with Danny Amendola. Amendola is three games with an injury. Put those players on injured reserve. Why is that such a – they've made it so easy for NFL teams to manipulate their injuries. If it was like this every year, I, maybe they would understand how to do it, but it's an absolute gift that teams are able to manipulate the IR the way they are this year. It it's, makes things so much easier. And when you have a 16-player practice squad, you should never be in a roster crunch. You should never have depth issues because you can put any number of players on that time at any point and that I mean players like adrian peterson are signing to practice squads before they're getting signed to the active roster you can put anybody there they should never you should never even think to have to ask the question that you did but i understand why it's because of how they do things here it makes so little sense but again it's it's very much predicated on grenard's health if he's not healthy yes they probably have to do something else and i don't know what they think of harris or what they think of smith also on the practice squad, but they're definitely, you know, beyond Rivers, they might have to add an additional player. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the defensive line has been a strength of this, of this defense so far, as we've seen, you know, they, they rely this, the, the blitz rate for this defense for Lovey Smith is one of the lowest among the league. And they rely on getting pressure from four or five players at most and, you know, like we talked about many times tonight, that that was a, a big piece of that. And Jacob Martin continues to flash when he he is he is a conundrum to me. He is not his size is not conducive to a four three defensive end. And he and he struggles in the run game. Don't get me wrong. He gets he gets blocked in. He gets set on the edge pretty hard sometimes. But from a pass rush perspective, his speed rush, his his bend is really pretty dang good for for his for his pedigree and 
it just blows my mind when he gets on the field and he had a large number of snaps this weekend because of the Jenkins injury and with Grenard not being out and he still had six quarterback pressures this weekend. To me, that just speaks volumes of you do have certain players that have the ability to do these things and Lovey Smith and I'm completely fine with rotating defensive linemen because you want you want the fresh legs and I get all that. But it just who plays week in and week out just kind of surprises me. And, you know, you don't see Martin getting the amount of snaps that you would think he would get. But I don't know that he's in their future plans based on his size and his build and his ability in the run defense versus the pass defense. Whereas you see somebody like Demarcus Walker, who seems to excel in both both sides of run defense and pass defense, but not put together the same type of highlight numbers that Martin does. So it's curious to see, you know, A, we saw a little increase in blitz this week. We saw some more defensive line stunts. We saw them bring in linebackers on the stunts. You know, and it seems like Lovey is really starting to finally – you know, because they obviously didn't want to run the ball, like you mentioned earlier, they'd abandoned the run earlier, so he was able to dial up a little more blitzes. So, from an overall perspective of what you see from the defense going forward, do you have any specific thoughts on that going forward? Yes. One other thing about the Titans game is not only did they abandon the run, they abandoned the play action pass, which they basically did once Henry left, you know, a couple of weeks ago. That's, I mean, I know what he provides, but just completely forgetting about it makes no sense like not having you know pre-snap motion not running play action pass it doesn't matter who the personnel is it doesn't matter what kind of success you're having you can't not run those plays you can't not put people in motion and the teams and the offenses that do that they're killing themselves they're making it way too easy on defenses and you know Jonathan Grenard um was at the podium and he was talking one after one game about how it was so, I mean, he didn't, I don't think he meant to say it. And I don't know if he realized what he was saying, but he's basically saying the other teams have film. And so we're screwed. You know, the other teams know exactly what's coming. And so they run it and it works. Well, of course it's going to work because we don't do anything to disguise what we have in store for them. And it's, that's very lovey related. I know he's been in the league a long time and I know he's got plenty of, of uh, you know skins on the wall, but if they're so reliant on their four guys up front beating the five guys in front of them that they, they make it so hard on the guys behind them. I mean, their secondary is, is almost always in a world of hurt. And this week was one week where it didn't happen because they did have so much success up front and they made the opponents one dimensional. You know, I think Lovey's scheme is going to look worse and worse when it's 14 to three every week when they're playing on the road and everybody knows they're never going to get into the end zone. It makes it even worse than it has to be. But, you know, one of the things that did work and was smart was looking at, you know, for what they were going to do is Malik Collins. And he's another player that, again, I don't know how he could come back because everybody in the league is now going to look at him and say, oh, good. The year with the Raiders was an aberration. That isn't who he is. He's been a, one of the easily one of the top eight or ten interior defensive linemen, certainly the, the least heralded that's had a strong season. Uh, he has been very, very good. And the numbers are all there to back it up. But if you just watch every week, you can see it. He's the one getting in the backfield. It would be nice if he didn't have three roughing the passer penalties. I don't think he deserved all of them. And he got another good hit on uh, Tannehill this week. But 
Aaron Donald, Hargrave, uh, Quinn and Williams, Grady Jarrett. Those are the four players league-wide, the only four players, who have a better pass-rush win rate on the interior than Malik Collins. He's been great. He's the only reason I think their defense up front has been able to kind of withstand all the different personnel and kind of the way they're doing things. It doesn't. I don't mean the other players they added aren't good. You mentioned Demarcus Walker. Again, if, if you're talking about a team who's got a good D-line, they have a good defense, they're a 500 or better team, Demarcus Walker is a great player to add for depth. Here, he's got to be one of your better players. Not sure that's really who he is, but he's been given the opportunity, and he's made a few plays. Again, good player, shouldn't be 29th on, the, on a team's depth chart. He should be 40th or 45th, and they have tons and tons of those guys. That's the real issue there. Roy Lopez looks like a fantastic late-round pick. Uh, no reason to think he won't get the lion's share of work on the interior for the next three seasons under this rookie deal. That's awesome. That's great. And he's been exceptional um, against the run. Um, he's seventh in the league in run-stop win rate as a D-tackle. In the entire league, this late-round pick, that's how good he's been. And they recognized it early. They recognized it in camp. He's been a regular interior rotation guy pretty much all season long. Another good thing. They're going to have issues pretty much everywhere else where, you know, the edge, what you said about Martin and his long-term future here, you know, the Jenkins situation, even though he's under contract for another year, um, been a little bit hit or miss and consistent with his work. Awesome guy and great in their locker room, which everybody loves to hear. But uh, again, these are all good players that should fit in a locker room that's trying to win their 11th game not in a locker room that they're among the 10 or 12 best players that the team has. That's the real issue that they have. And um, I'm not really sure how they, how this group didn't mesh with Charles Amenahu. It was pretty clear. This was not a good fit in any way, whether it was mentally, whether it was, I don't mean his intellect. I mean how he saw things versus they, how they saw how they wanted to use him. Um, I can't believe a player with that much talent has just basically said, go ahead, play for another team. Uh, teams that are in this situation should never be doing that. And they did. I, I think he'll have a perfectly nice career, a lengthy one for a player drafted where he was. It just won't be here now, which is a shame. Um, that's that's just, to me, that's a total waste. Too much talent for them to have put in a defense where they can't figure out how best to use him. And it seems like every time I want to say that was a good game from Ross Blacklock, or this is where I think you're seeing why he was picked where he was, uh, the other half of the game doesn't work out, or he commits a dumb penalty, or he gets blown off the ball. Something happens to kind of balance it out in, in the other direction. And what, what happens almost every week is you peek over at what uh, Indianapolis Colts running back Jonathan Taylor is doing, and then look back at the draft and say, huh, yeah, that was a kind of a miss. He was right behind the Blacklock pick. Yep, yep. That one's always a that one's always a, a pain in my side. And and on the on the Manahu thing, I mean, you nailed it. It's it's frustrating. We, I think we talked about it a couple week or a couple three weeks ago that after the, when he was traded for for basically peanuts, that I think he's going to go over to D'Amico Ryan's scheme. He's going to, you know, he'll take a little bit of time, but he'll end up doing well there, and he'll end up getting an extension there. And then there's going to be a lot of egg on the Texans front office face when the time comes, when that's handed out. So that's my opinion on that. We'll leave it there. Um, you talked about some of the future. So kind of what we do, you know, we have, a, you know, different people on each week here. So I kind of wanted to, 
I ask everybody this question, and it changes week to week, obviously. But as of today, what are some of the players that signed this year on the one-year contracts that are worth re-signing for 2022? Uh, let's see. I don't think there's anybody on the offensive line unless I'm just kind of going brain dead there. I don't, I don't think there's anyone in that group. Not uh, not McCray, not Britt. So I think they're fine moving on from those guys. Uh, they obviously <laughs> – the wide receivers that they – like Chris Conley, nice player. A person exactly like Chris Conley, or Chris Moore for that matter, is available every single offseason. The way Nick attacked this offseason, he'll probably sign five different guys like Dante Moncrief and, and Philip Dorsett. I, I don't think any of them, uh, those one-year guys, will be back. And I sure hope Danny Amendola isn't back. Um, yeah, he had, my, uh, he had 13 most, snaps this weekend. So. <laughs> I, I, I get mad at myself when I, when I say it like this, but it makes me feel like it drives the point across the most. Here's what the Texans should have done with their slot receiver this offseason. Absolutely nothing. Kiki QT was on the roster. He was going into the last year of his rookie deal. Do nothing. Play him. He's your slot receiver. How hard was that? Instead, they sign Alex Erickson. Uh, they trade for Anthony Miller. Then they sign for multiple million dollars. Danny Amendola, who was sitting on his couch. Why? Why are you doing all this? Just play the guy that's already under contract. That's exactly the same as every other guy you just ran through. I don't know why Cal McNair likes watching uh, Nick Casario burn his money up but he certainly isn't against it because he's letting it happen over and over and over again. So I really don't understand that one either. So no wideouts. Tight end position is going to be completely turned over again. Pharaoh Brown is at least one answer uh, to your question. Absolutely positively, I think this guy is way underutilized. It would be nice if he hadn't had the injury the last couple of weeks. It would be nice after week one they realized this is a weapon. Let's use him. Um, he's not an awesome blocker. He's not an awesome receiver but he's better than most at both, and they should be utilizing him a whole lot more. I'd absolutely think he's a player they should bring back. If Jordan Akins is drawing inactives as a healthy player, he's going to play his last couple of games on this a rookie deal, but the rest of the tight end positions just like the wideouts. Anthony O'Claire and who knows who else, they will sign several new tight ends, and I hope it's Farrell Brown, Brevin Jordan, and some other new free agent because I don't know that there is – you know, a guy like Eau Claire will sign a minimum deal to come back for one year, so maybe you just keep it as is uh, beyond that. Uh, they should sign a veteran running back. They shouldn't have a single – there should probably be zero carries in 2022 from anybody who carried the ball in 2021. Entirely new backfield, 100%. Sign a vet, draft a kid, get an undrafted free agent, then fill in the gaps. Uh, so nobody that they brought in – remember, they did technically – Nick Casario signed – David Johnson, because he restructured his deal, which was, again, stupid, just let go. Take the dead hit this year, which wasn't even that much, and nobody cares about the 2021 cap anyway. But instead, he restructured his deal, brought him back, signed Ingram, he's gone, signed Lindsey, he's gone. Have total confidence in Nick Casario, insert sarcasm here, that he'll be able to figure out a running back room. So that pretty much wipes out the offense. Uh, they're going to have a, a, a different quarterback with Davis Mills next year. And at this point, I don't think it's going to be a rookie, but some other free agent quarterback will be added. So Taylor doesn't answer your question either. I don't think Tyrod Taylor uh, comes back. Would love to have Malik Collins back. 
I can't believe he and his agent would ever say yes to that, though, unless the Texans massively overpaid him. Some other good team will offer him a good deal, and he'll go play there. Uh, it makes just it just makes more sense for him to go ahead and do that. Um, most of the other defensive guys that they signed, if I have this correctly, uh, Jenkins, Mitchell signed two-year deals would be back. Kevin Pierre Lewis obviously signed a two-year deal, but I don't obviously he's, they he's, got he's nothing gone. from him. He's gone. As soon yeah, as he's gone. I've I've already heard from multiple people that that was just a bad signing and he's done. Yeah, I, there's he was hurt and he wasn't he didn't play himself onto the field during camp. It was like. By default, I think we figured he would be their third linebacker, and that didn't even uh, play out that way. So I think what ended up happening is he'll, he signed all those guys to one-year deals, and, and Neville Hewitt's another one. If, if you want a guy like Neville Hewitt, who they added, guys like that are available. You want to sign a new Neville Hewitt, go right ahead. You saw when he's out there, he'll make plays. Not great plays. He'll clean up some of the issues you have, and he's a tackle machine, but he's not a great player. That's why the, the Jets let him go. I expect next year to be another – good number of one-year deals for veterans now they need to pare that down number pare that number down from this year and replace it with there, there should be at least 12 players in the 2022 draft class if you count undrafted free agent at least 12 players that are in this draft whether they end up being undrafted free agents or actual selections by the texans that's how many players they should be adding not the five they added this year that's pathetic and embarrassing and stupid. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And the names that I have written down for me is Collins. Like you said, if he's willing to come back, Grugier Hill. One name that I, I'm I'm trying to sell myself on it, on it and I, I'm having difficulty, Garon Christian, and that's specifically to be resigned as a swing tackle. Uh, Demarcus Walker and Taylor, and we'll we'll get to Tyrod in a second. Neville Hewitt and Auclair are my names today. Farrell Brown had been on this list for a while. He is not on my list at this time, so we'll see if that changes. And then another name, I know this is not in the purview of the question that I asked, but I kind of want to get your take on Justin Reed and is it worth investing in him? I I... I'm firmly in the belief that Justin Reed is very much a businessman. He treats this as a business, and this is a business decision. I know his brother's history plays into this, and he is fully well going to test the market and see what's out there for him. But is it worth investing, a, we'll say, a three-year contract? That I mean, he's obviously his performance is not near the top-tier safety market that's making $14, $15 million a year, but he's he's – he very well could see that 10 to $12 million a year with 15 to 18 million in guaranteed. Is it worth investing in Justin Reed? Uh, I think it probably is, but I can't imagine the Texans offer him the most money. Not the way it sounded this past off season when they could have negotiated with him to a certain extent or to, to get to this point and avoid this. And, and not with the way I think you accurately portray his ideas of, of the NFL. I mean, is he going to be a free agent again? Probably, but this is it for some guys. Go make your money. Somebody's going to offer him more money than the Texans, and almost every team in the league offers a better situation than the Texans. He could sign a three-year deal here. How many wins is he going to have in those three years? Ten? Maybe? Eleven? You got, you, they have to consider that at least a little bit. I know it's always about you know the money talks in the NFL, and it absolutely should. So just start there. I would be surprised 
if they did it. And I think he's probably a player you can, you know, I don't want to say live without, but he's just not quite at the level you want to commit that kind of money to. Um, for them, it really doesn't matter, the reality. They can commit whatever amount of money they want to, and it's not going to hurt their, their ability to, to become better because they're not going to be better. He's not going to, in the three years he's here, his contract is not going to be in the way of anything they're trying to do because they're not going to be at that level of competition. Uh, so, yes, he'd be worth keeping. I doubt he's going to be kept, though. And you mentioned Kamu Grugier-Hill. I probably should have as well. Uh, he's been a very good player. When he's been asked to make plays, he's gone out there. When the opportunity has been presented to him because he was healthy enough to, to get out there where other guys weren't, uh, he's been good. He's the best at diagnosing plays. He doesn't always make the play, but he reads the play probably better than everybody else. He's shot gaps countless times uh, to get guys in the backfield. He obviously made a, a great play on um, on Tannehill, basically, kind of baited him into making that throw, and he just shifted over and made the easy pick. Uh, so you, that's a player I should have mentioned that you did that I definitely think they, they would want a player like that back. Yeah. So we did get a couple questions on DM. And uh, like I said, if you want to – we got about another seven or eight minutes here, but if you got a question and you don't want to ask it verbally, you know, send me, a, send me a DM. So Commissioner Johnson, and this was a great question, what happened to Lane Taylor? I thought he could be a potential starter this year. And I've just been waiting. I mean, I think I tweeted like two weeks ago, like this is going to be the week that, that Taylor is going to start. And I mean, he's already out of elevations. He's been elevated twice. So he has to be signed to the active roster before he can come up. But at, I mean, we see Sharping is just nothing. McCray is bad. I mean, it's just getting blown up. <laughs> What? Why is why is Lane Taylor not on this roster and given a shot at this point? And do you? I mean, can you explain that to me, Adam? Because I can't figure it out. I mean, he's a camping guy. He came from Green Bay under camping for many, many years, and he was a as above serviceable serviceable starter in Green Bay. Uh, I don't personally, even though Coach Cully said he was healthy the other day when he was asked, I, I don't know how that's possible. Friend was Marcus Cannon because they were on the side fields, couldn't get onto the field, wasn't healthy, couldn't play. I just don't think he's he's healthy personally. Um, there's no way he shouldn't be on the field over the group they're playing at guard now. Sharping obviously can't play in this league, at least not for this team. And Justin McCray is not a good player. I don't understand it either, but he's not. I don't believe they're going to sign him this week because Cole Toner is active every week, and he never even sees the field. He and Davis Mills get the uh, DNPs on a weekly basis. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, he's a guard slash center, but I don't, I don't know. I can't figure that out. So, Commissioner Johnson, we don't have an answer for you other than we don't know why. And Adam's speculation might be on point that it, it maybe it's a, a health related issue. And he's just not where they need to be. And another question from DM from Steve Emerson. So is the amount of dead money already in 2022 a concern? Is this reflective of a poor talent evaluation by Casario with forward, forwarding bonus money to the wrong port, wrong people? I, I get the intent of the question, Steve. And I, I've been on record many times that I don't agree with the amount of restructures that Casario performed. Uh, it it really blew my mind 
as we were progressing through free agency of how much money he shifted to 2022 and 2023. The dead money is not a major concern at this point in time. I think they're sitting at like 22 and change on dead money and that's including Whitney, Whitney, you know, Whitney Merciless and Shaq Lawson and Bradley Roby and Randall Cobb. That's a lot of debt. That's a big chunk of your dead money for 2022. And it's like I said, it's at 22 million right now. That number is going to go up as they make more releases. So I don't think, I mean, it's it, it, dead money is always a, a limiting factor, but it's not something that's going to hurt anything. You know, the cap floor is going to be, I think 208, 208 million for next year. So, is it a an evaluation issue by Casario? Um, you know, we we need two or three years of Casario work to really put evaluation and determine if his evaluation is on point because we've seen it. He's made multiple trades for day three picks that didn't turn out, like Miller, like the the cornerback from Green Bay, Ryan Finley, who never even saw daylight and was released before after a trade. So. Things like that, we're just going to have to wait to see how things come along from that point. we got a few more minutes, so i got a, I got two more questions for, for Adam before – actually three, if we can get through them real quick, Adam. So, Titus Howard, his fifth-year option is due – I already have my answer on this. His fifth-year option <laughs> is due by May of 2022. Under the new CBA, it would be fully guaranteed at the point of activating it versus the old way where it'd be guaranteed for injury only. Are you activating the fifth-year option on Howard even? Because the money is the same. It's based on his draft position, so it's not based on guard, tackle, things like that. But are you right at this point? His fifth-year option would be worth $12.75 million in 2023. Are you activating that fully guaranteed fifth-year option? No. Absolutely. Yeah. That's absolutely and if he, for some reason, just flipped it around and started playing well, the franchise tag for an offensive line is going to probably be around $17 million. So I'm with you on that. Next question. David Coley, is he back for 2022? Yes. I don't mean, again, let's, let's recognize what, what he was given and what he could possibly have done. He was given a veteran quarterback who had bad, bad, bad injury history, and he got hurt six quarters into his season. And then they gave him a third-round pick to be a starting quarterback for more than half the season with a team full of one-year contract players that were all available in free agency to any team in the league and had nowhere else to go. There's no way they could win. But as we talked about at the onset of our conversation, you still can't make the mistakes. You're the head coach. You got to put your team in the best position to win. You got to know when to accept a penalty. You got to know when to give your team a chance to go for it on fourth down. These aren't even difficult decisions. What they did at the end uh, of the game, you know, not knowing whether to let them score or communicating with their defense on what to do uh, when they were on defense out there against the Patriots, I guess that was. It's just, you got to do those things right. You don't have to be perfect, but you got to do those things correctly. He'll be back for another year, but. I don't know how much longer it goes beyond that. I still don't think the roster will be particularly good. So I also don't think they will have him in a position where he can coach his way to wins, especially when their quarterback will be probably one of the 10 worst in the league again next year, no matter who it is, but he'll be back uh, for a second season. I'm sure. All right. And my last question is Larry, is Laramie Tunsil going to take another snap for this team? I kept wanting to say yes. 
And I do. I think the answer is still yes, unless they allow him to say he has a setback in a couple weeks. He, his his timeline is he should be back. You know, it, it'll take a little while to get some strength back. Yes. After that, there's nothing else holding him back. No reason his conditioning would have been would not have been fine. Uh, it's 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 an injury that should not have shelved him for the entire season. And I I don't know how well that plays in a normal locker room, which I don't know that this one is, but you've got a guy who's watching everybody else go out there and play every week and give everything they have. And if he gets healthy and just doesn't come back for a guy who's under contract in the future, uh, that probably isn't looked on very highly. And I don't know that he's a player that even wants to, to do that, to sit. I I tend to believe he actually will be back. I, I don't know if I'm the minority on that, but I do think he will, he'll see the field again this year. I'm having trouble determining my answer on that one, but I do think he will be back for 2022. I don't think the team values him as a trade asset. I think they value him as a cornerstone type of foundation player. Whether Tunsil agrees with that, I don't know. What was that? Why why do they do that? Does anybody else think he's one of the top tackles in the league? Certainly, the metrics don't. No, he. Have. I mean, yeah. I mean, he's 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 gonna go into the to the player contract hall of fame with his with his ability based on he's he's a top ten tackle who's paid like a top three tackle, and you know that's just a function of trading for him and and having that much leverage. But I still think today, and I I I reserve the right to change my judgment. I think today he's still a piece that you're going to keep around for 2022. Probably a correct. I would tend to agree. Yes. All right. Again, you trade him because it's a money thing. There is no money thing. No matter. You mentioned the 22 million in debt money. So what? It's not, if it's preventing you from doing things, then it matters. Their debt money, while it should never be that high, it should all have been in 2021 or almost all of it. The fact that Shaq Lawson has that amount of debt money on next year's cap is, again, an incredibly bad move by this GM. Uh, it's not going to impede them. It's not really in the way because of who they are and, and what they're you know, capable of. They're not in the market for big money free agents to begin with, so it's really not in the way. It's not in the way of you know re-upping people or restructuring. It, it doesn't matter. But it's not a. It's it's a shouldn't be what it is. It's just not in the way, and and that means you don't have to move Tunsil for money. You you can absolutely afford to have him at that rate on your cap. Yeah, I, I I've always said it, and people have trouble grasping this: is cap dollars is just a and an accounting function. Cash is king. If a team is not signing players, it's because there's a cash flow issue and not a cap issue. Teams can make cap dollars. Teams teams can flex money out, just like we saw this year. So, if Tunsil's not around next year, it's I don't think it's more of a cultural locker room issue. I think it would be a cap uh, a cash issue. So, we'll see what happens. And for that, you know, we've reached our we've reached our hour. We're an hour and two minutes. Adam, I really appreciate you taking some time for us. Um, like I said, folks, if you don't listen, Adam is on the week on the afternoon drive on seven ninety Sports Radio. You know, is a great, great, great person that I that I talk to and lean on. He's got some very founded takes. He kind of reels me in sometimes on some of my things, and he's very just a great person to to follow on Twitter. And Adam, I appreciate the time. Hey, thanks for having me on here. And 
Uh, don't forget, you also do some very good things. If any of you guys ever are wondering what's cooking with the cap and where this money goes and what happens when it's before and after June 1st and everything like that, he's got you covered. I appreciate it. So, Adam, with that, we will call it a night. I think we hit 90% of my talking points tonight, which is a record. So that's pretty awesome. Nice efficiency number tonight. So thanks for everybody listening. I hope everybody has a great Thanksgiving holiday. Um, Adam, be safe out there, and we will be back next week. And everyone have a great night. Thank you. See you guys.